You're watching Global Trade This Week with Pete Mento and Doug Draper. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Global Trade This Week. I am your host, Doug Draper, coming to you from a hotel room in the beautiful city of Fresno, California. And on the other side, literally this time, it's on the other side of, uh, of, of the country from where I am is my good friend, partner in crime, Mr. Pete Mento. Pete, how's it going? Good, Doug. Doug, you love our audience so much that you woke up this morning, you took a shower, you got yeah. dressed. We, we up at 5 a.m. today to get ready for the show. Is that what you did? Yeah, it's uh, 6, 6 a.m. I got to have my butt in the chair. So dedication for our viewers at Global Trade this week. Yeah, that's that's love, pal. That's love. Like, you know, I mean, it's still nine, nine o'clock for me. I like a regular day. I even, I went and got my hair cut this morning. I went and saw the barber and, you know, seriously, this is nothing. Oh yeah. What time is your barber? Some hair, Doug. I saw some hair. What time does the barbershop open where you're from? Um, this, this guy opens up at like six, a couple days a week, but I went in at like, you know, seven. I mean, it's, it's not, it's not, doesn't your barber open up or do you go to a hairdresser, Doug? Are you, <laughs> are you, are you that, are you that bougie? No, you are you kidding me? I'm, we're, we're pretty common. Now I, I have like five different barbers, depends on who's open and what. So I, it's, uh, I, yeah, I don't go at 7 a.m. I think we should have, um, we should have Keenan do like a full blowout. Like we should have him <laughs> deep condition it. And then have, you know, Amy take her Dyson, uh, her, like her air roller she's got up there and just like, fully 1980s, you know, rock chick blowout his hair, tease it up. We'll get some Aquanet going on it, do the whole bit. Yeah. Put a fan in front of him. So it's got. Oh yeah. Yeah. Play some white snake while it's all going on. I think that'd be pretty awesome. Love it. Keenan knows who white snake is. Oh, he does. Yeah. You think so? Sure. Oh, we'll find out at the end of the show. That would be pretty, (laughs) that would be, I'd be really upset if someone Keenan's age didn't know who white snake was. That would bug me. Yeah. 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 It's uh. It's crazy. So quick story. Um, so I was skiing last weekend and, you know, the lifties, when you're getting ready to get on the, on the, the lift, they always crank some type of music. Um, and it was, um, Jesus. Now I just forgot the song. Um, Deep Purple. Um, oh, Smoke on the Water. Smoke on the Water. No, it's uh, shit. This, this Don't is Fear the uh, Reaper. Yes. Yeah. And it was. Um, yeah, I know. And anyway, this gal behind me was talking about how her son, you know, likes the song or whatever. But the cool thing is she's like, yeah, that song needs a little more cowbell. And I turned ah. around and I said, absolutely understand the reference. <laughs> and we were fast friends all along after that. The song so. needs more cowbell. <laughs> yeah. yeah, good. Yeah. <laughs> good. Yeah. Good, uh, good accent there. Very fun. That's my Christopher Walken for the day. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's get this party started. So you lead us off. Yeah. So uh, topic number one today is uh, is a kind of a tough one for for trade professionals. So if you're a compliance person, like if you ever go to ICPA, Doug, you should come with me to the international compliance. Oh, come on. Why are you going to be that way? Right. So that and this is. This is the type of anti-trade nerd bias that yeah. holds my people down. That's sort of an attitude, man. Yeah. There's a lot of freight at ICPA. So you know what? Bring you it. might want to rethink. You might want to rethink that response, my friend. Okay. Um, yeah. So 
you go to ICPA and um, it's, just, it's just chock full of trade professionals. And I would say that the um, maybe 70%, 70%, let me turn off my never ending uh, creator of noises and, and beeps and boops yeah. that constantly goes on during our show. Uh, 70%, I'd say, of the people there primarily would consider themselves to be import trade compliance professionals. So that's, and a big reason for that is import compliance a lot of times can result in cost savings, cost recovery, cost reductions. So your boss is like, hey, you're going to get me a check for that duty drawback, right? Or you're going to save me money. And, and that's why they're very popular. Um, you'll have some people that understand export compliance, but they're a sliver, like a sliver of my, my people. Um, and then you'll have, you know, people who understand bits of both, but they're still usually much stronger on import compliance and they understand export compliance like, eh. Mm -hmm. but it's pretty rare to find people who really understand export compliance. And that's, that's a shame, buddy, because, you know, we spoke a little while ago about the, um, just this feeling I had in my gut that they were going to recover that balloon off the coast of the Carolinas. And it was yeah. just going to be chock full of American technology. And, um, you know, there was an article that was, uh, that I put up on LinkedIn. There's a couple of American companies that are like, like they're like biting their fingernails right now because they have, uh, they have financial stakes in Chinese companies and they have, um, they have tech technology that was, that was probably more likely than not would have been used in this type of platform. And they're just terrified. Mm -hmm. terrified at that knock on the door is coming. And sort of the whole point of my, my, my rant on LinkedIn this week was there's precious few people that have been well-trained and sort of tried by fire on export compliance. And we need more. And if you want to be a very employable, um, sought after and, and pretty much indispensable pal member of the trade community, you need no export compliance because export compliance enforcement is brutal. These guys are nasty. And uh, every year, they just get more and more money for enforcement. Every year, they get out there and they're more and more aggressive. And I think because of our, our heightened stance that we have right now with the Chinese, you're going to see them out in the, uh, the marketplace, out in the environment, just being tougher and tougher on exporters. So consider this, you know, your double secret probation final warning, folks. If you don't, if you don't know a lot about export compliance, you need to learn it. If you're in a position where you can hire people, do it. And uh, Doug, man, come to ICPA with me. These people are fun. Mm -hmm. You don't think so, but they're fun. They're yeah, fun people. I, I don't know. So two things come to come to mind on that one. One is, in order to export something, you have to make something, right? Yeah, so I think that's, that's a true. bigger statement to um, things that are starting to migrate. That we've talked about uh, reshoring and bringing things back to the United States, but I think it's emblematic. I, I, Jeez, I've never used that word before, so hopefully it uh, it fits well in that comment. But um, yeah, it goes to the fact that there's not as much stuff being made in the United States, so there's not as many exports, maybe military and ITAR-related type of things. But I think the fact that most people are not as well-versed in your industry, uh, in my um, simple view of things, is a reflection that uh, we just import a hell of a lot more things than we export. Um, that's the first thing that comes to mind. Secondly... We're all on the same team, so hopefully the compliance isn't punitive. It's more educational, but I get it. That's, uh, again, maybe a little naive on my part. So two comments. Those are mine on the topic. 
You know, quick follow up on your second comment. So the the export compliance has a lot to do with national security. It has a lot to do with with keeping our scientific greatness, you know, our, our sort of accelerated scientific greatness out of the hands of other countries mm-hmm. who just want to steal it. They just want to steal it. They they can't make it themselves, so they want to co opt our our scientific advancement. So keeping our our advanced scientific creations out of the hands of people who just really want to reverse engineer it and steal it. That's a big part of it. And knowing if we sent it to someone, how, how many of these things that are very special were sent out? Who are they sent out to? So now we can follow the trail of breadcrumbs to figure out how this thing that came from America ended up being stolen and recreated by somebody. That's a big part of export compliance. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And you know, a lot of the stuff that we're controlling, that export compliance is important because it's the lifeblood of our economy. It's just very specialized, high value exporting stuff, Doug. So um yeah, it's exciting stuff. And you're in Denver. Well, not right now, but um, you you and the button pushing Wookiee are both in Denver. And that is a extremely important, vital, vital, strategically important part of uh, you know, our country's economy when it comes to high end exports. So yeah. a lot of very great people, um, great people that are out there, um, friends of the show who are fantastic at uh, export compliance, particularly our friends out there at Sierra Nevada Corporation. So, yeah, yeah. great point. Good point. Proud of all that here from in Colorado. So, all right. I'm hey, buddy. What's your first topic? Yep, yep, yep. Mine is uh, related to uh, electric vehicles, further referenced in this rant as EVs. So, one thing that has transpired that, that I've seen is that the electrification of the final mile uh, is really starting to uh, to take hold. You know, you talk about the five categories uh, of in- innovation. There's like the innovators, I think it's first adopters, mm-hmm. early majority, late majority, and then, then the kind of losers, if you will, that missed the boat. So I think the it, we're, we've gone away from the innovator stage. Um, now we're in the uh, early adapters. It just seems like everybody and their dog is starting to come out with the solution for final mile, which is perfect because it is a battery that is running things and uh, the distance traveled is, is very short. So I think it's awesome that the, um, that the electric vehicle is starting to take hold. At the same time, I think that's just where a lot of attention is being, being drawn because um, electrification of long haul, meaning uh, the Nikola and all these semis that are gonna be on the road with batteries I think it's starting to file off on the on the wayside, fall off on the wayside, and uh, effort, energy, and interest is really going to the final mile. And um, I have to give credit, Pete, because I know that you've um, uh, had their back, and I've poked fun at them time and again. But I will give the United States Postal Service uh, a little street cred here. Uh, it's low hanging fruit because a lot of what we see out there on the day to day basis is the delivery trucks, not the not the semis, but I read they want to electrify like 66,000 uh, of their yep. uh, postal trucks by 2028. They're trying to focus most of those uh, purchases of those vehicles made in the U.S. Um, and, you know, from the largest federally backed fleet, um, I think it's kind of cool that, uh, you know, they're uh, putting their money where their mouth is, walking the walk as they talk the talk. Uh, so, so I like it. I, I, I really like the fact that electrification is starting to take hold. It's out of the, hey, let's test this and sell a couple thousand trucks to this company or that company. And uh, I think now it's kind of getting over the hump. And I think we're going to see it continue to evolve and become more 
uh, more commonplace. And I like it. And you know what? Kudos to the United States Postal Service for kind of leading the charge and, and everything else. They need to continue to market the hell out of that thing so people ha have some positive spin on what uh, what the Postal Service is doing to try to change uh, um, you know, perception. So that's my take on the electric vehicle scene, Pete. Who are you and what have you done with Doug? That's the first. <laughs> is this invasion of the body snatchers? Why, why is Doug Draper saying nice things about the electrification of uh, I I don't know. I, who, I know I know mile electrification and and plus maybe it's the fact that I'm not at altitude anymore and I'm in Fresno, California. Um, but mm. yeah. Anyway, it's the final mile. All the blood found you, right? You're saying nice yeah. things about the postal service. I don't mm -hmm. know who you are, man. Like I <laughs> I don't know. If, you know, find me find me find me another logistics firm that can deliver the value that the U.S. Postal Service can every day, like clockwork. Get your crap. Whatever. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna start there. I'm gonna. I'm gonna shockingly like make your point for a change here. Uh, in that tractor trailers, the electrification of tractor trailers would be awesome if these companies would deliver their damn tractor trailers. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Tesla was supposed to be on the road with these things by now, and I don't know that they've actually delivered any of them, bud. Mm -hmm. Like it's it's a it's fabulous that they want to electrify these fleets of trailers, but in order to do so, you must sell your trucks and deliver them to the people who want to put them on the road. I mean, that's that's kind of a fundamental business principle of 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 shaking up the whole industry mm -hmm. is actually delivering your trucks. So that's that's driven me crazy. But on the on the postal side, it just you know makes sense. Uh, if you can deliver pizzas and deliver and deliver coffee on an electric scooter, you should be able to deliver packages and deliver mail. And because it's done in a relatively small geographical set, then it should be something that should be dependably charged, and you should mm -hmm. be able to do the math on how far you can do it, how long you can do it, and be able to charge it up. So this is just just math. And with with the fact that these fleets are, are getting old, um, it was time to turn them over. It was a smart investment and uh, makes everybody happy. But I agree with you. It's not well marketed and it needs to be. But the Postal Service is spending their money and investing on delivering for you, Doug, not marketing. They're all about service. They're not so, they're not so concerned about tooting their own horn, my friend. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. We'll leave it at that. Um, here's one of the fun sections. I was going to say funnest, but I checked myself because we have a smart audience and uh, they would probably tear me apart for that. So the, one of the most enjoyable parts of our show, Pete, is, uh, is halftime mm. brought to you by Cap Logistics and, uh, and Keenan, Keenan's team pushing the buttons. Um, this is a time when we can talk about whatever the heck we want to talk about, which, uh, which is always fun. I love seeing your halftime comments, and uh, I, I would say most of the time I just shake my head like, where's this, where's this one going to go today? And if there wasn't one where I was going to say, where is this one going to go today? It is today's topic that you're bringing to the table, Pete, so let it rip. Yeah, hey, listen, don't freak out. Um, this is probably not what you thought I was going to talk about with this okay. topic, but um, this weekend was the... Uh, it was it was a, a phenomenon. It was a cultural phenomenon. Ways that people didn't realize it, and it was a, a technical marvel to me. 
this weekend at 10 o'clock Eastern time, this last past weekend on Netflix, Chris Rock, arguably one of the greatest stand-up comedians in the world. And um, depending on who you speak to, one of the most important voices in comedy got on stage live in Baltimore, Maryland, and did his set. And he, he did a, a relatively tight 60-minute set. He was a few minutes over, but he streamed live to what we're understanding now was, was literally tens of millions of people. We don't have the final numbers yet, but they're saying that it was somewhere in the neighborhood worldwide of somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 million people watched that live. Yeah. Okay, so 50 million people watched this man do a live set and, and by his own admission, he'd be flubbed up one joke, but still 50 million people or so watch it live. And then who knows how many people are 50 million streams, how many people watch it live after that. And it went off pretty darn well and technically without a hitch. Um, now you're probably, you're probably worried. I was going to talk about the content of the yeah. show, which is not what I'm going to do today. Uh, what I'm talking about more importantly is this was a fabulous way for people to see live comedy. Since the pandemic, one of the problems that we have had uh, in, in the comedic world is that folks are not going to see live music. They're not going to see um, live theater, and they're certainly not going out to see live comedy. Um, if you have not seen Chris Rock's show, watch it and watch it live. There's a high wire act that comedians have to do when they're up on stage. There's a high wire act at live theater and live music does as well. What he says on stage, if you think it's funny, great. If you don't, that's great too. That's what art's all about. But I'm asking all of you at some point to take some time, um, buy a ticket and see a live performance because um, being an artist is hard. I can tell you from my own personal experience, getting up on stage and telling jokes and telling, having people tell you that you suck to your face not exactly easy, um, but go out there and support artists and live venues wherever you have a chance. See, Doug, you had nothing to worry about. And so uh, that's my halftime. So, Doug, go ahead and uh, let's hear about your halftime, buddy. Yes, it's something that affects um, 48 states um, in our country, uh, except for two. It is referred to the Uniform Time Act of 1966, otherwise known as daylight saving time. So I'm going to give a couple of takes on it, uh, a couple of statistics, then give you my personal take, and then I want to get your read on uh, on this whole time change thing. So uh, contrary to popular belief, it wasn't related to farming. Uh, it was back in World War One when they were looking to the government and the U.S. was looking to conserve energy. So um, the longer uh, it stayed daylight, um, the less coal and fuel things were needed to keep um, uh, keep everybody warm. So uh, the whole idea was uh, it was called wartime. Um, and then around uh, during World War II, it also transpired. And uh, oh, wait, hold on a second, Pete. My take is that during World War II, they kept it. There wasn't a weekly or it wasn't an annual change. They basically had it in place for about two years. Uh, and then they did the same thing from like 90 or excuse me, 73 to 75 where it did not switch back and forth again. That was during the, uh, the oil embargo uh, back in the early 70s. Hawaii and Arizona, only two states that don't observe it. 65% uh, of the year is actually on daylight saving time. Um, 70, per, 70 other countries uh, participate. 
Um, and the Fed has to vote, federal government has to vote to make any changes to keep it on one time zone or the other. And um, the one thing here, Pete, is it's called daylight saving, singular, daylight yep. saving time, not daylight savings time, which I know most people just kind of kind of rifle through. So here's my take. I could really care one way or another. You know, people talk about the sleep and how it's important and it screws up your uh, uh, system and whatever. Has anybody ever heard of jet lag, right? And people travel <laughs> a hell of a lot more than one time zone and everybody still survives and everybody changes their sleep. So, you know, I, I don't really care one way or another. You could argue for, for both sides of it. So I, I, I don't care enough to make it a topic or a comment. I wanted to make it uh, some awareness today. But Pete, what's your take on daylight saving time? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I've, I've an interesting take on it. First of all, it, it makes me very happy at one point of the year when I go to church every Sunday and then immediately after church, Amy and I go to the same diner every Sunday. And um, that Sunday, it's not as crowded because people oversleep. And it makes me happy because as you know, I hate large crowds of people. Um, and then I also love it when I'm flying on a Sunday and everybody has forgot to set their clocks back and nobody's on the plane because they all missed their flight. So I like that part of it as well. Um, so those are both instances where daylight savings making people's lives miserable makes me happy. Um, I, 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 do, I do hate the darkness of winter. Any way that we could bring some extra light into my life would be lovely. Um, the total timing thing in the world, like China has one giant time zone across all that geography. Um, the fact that Arizona just sort of like sticks their middle finger up to the whole country in Hawaii. Do I kind of like that being a guy from New Hampshire? I kind of wish we did the same thing. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't see the point of it anymore. So I'm not sure why we continue to do it. Uh, the whole time zone thing is like, like India, I think is 10 and a half hours ahead of us. 10 and a half, 10 and a half, Doug, not 10, not 11, 10 and a half hours, which has always been a pain in my ass every time I fly over there. Yeah. So um, time zones and all the rest of it always annoy the crap out of me, but I don't understand the whole point of daylight saving anymore. I'm not sure why we do it other than to frustrate me twice a year on Sunday when I get up for church because either I'm tired or um, I wake up for no good reason and have an hour with nothing to do. Yeah. yeah. Well, here's the deal. And then we'll jump over is that, you know, you want more daylight. It is called the yes. solar system. And it doesn't matter when we put the extra hour, the amount of daylight is going to be the same. You can spin it and, 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 and move it. One, Listen, smart there, ass. There is no more daylight to be grabbed. It's just changing the time. Listen, smart ass. I had to, I had to like, you know, be in, in St. Petersburg, Russia when the sun didn't go down for weeks. Okay. So kiss my ass. And I've had to be, you know, all over the, the Nordic, Nordic uh, countries when the sun doesn't go down and I go, and then it goes in the other direction and the sun doesn't come up. So yeah, I understand the tilt of the earth and all the rest of it. All right. So some of us weren't going to college, living in the frat house, doing beer bongs. We were actually in school learning about how the stars all work. So I understand all of that, but to a degree, that extra hour would make a difference in both the beginning and the end of this. Don't make me go all scientific on you there, sales guy, because right. I'll do it. Fair all enough. Right? You, you, yeah, I can't wait for the comments on this one because you are going to get roasted like planters nuts because it does make a difference in the beginning and the end of this. All right. So 
That will t- thank you again to our friends at uh, at Cap Logistics for giving me an opportunity to be a total prick to Doug at the end of halftime this week for calling me out on science. And um, as always, to learn more about our friends at Cap Logistics, go to caplogistics.com. That brings us to the second half of this week's show, whereupon I am going to lose it. Doug was worried that I was going to lose it on um, on the Chris Rock special. I didn't. I was fine. Yeah. I'm going to lose it on this. <laughs> so if you've been watching the news recently, we've had like two high-profile derailments. One that was like terrifying, terrifying in Ohio, where people's houses, you may never be able to go back to them. And the government saying one thing and people saying other, that's a whole other show that we don't do on this show. But, uh, you know, the secretary of transportation finally goes out there and there's some questions about, is this a regulatory issue? Is this an infrastructure issue? Should we be talking to, it's Northern South, that's a, Norfolk Southern, I think, mm-hmm. is, the, is the carrier, right? Yeah. How much of this was about the brakes? And then the NTSB comes out and says, this is totally avoidable. <laughs> this is totally avoidable. This could have been taken care of with the braking system. You're like, what the? Like, and then you're, you're watching all of this. And then I'm listening to other podcasts, and I'm kind of not paying attention to it. I'm, I'm doing work. I'm doing this e-commerce stuff at work. And I, I hear in the background, you know, like, like someone's talking, and you're not really paying attention. Then you hear... There were 1,700 derailments in 2021. You're like, what? And, and, and like, I stop what I'm doing and I start listening. We, in America, we average around 1,000 a year, Doug. Most of these are, are not catastrophic. You know, most of these are during the course of, of rail yard movements. But about 1,000 a year. And we lead the modern world like we lead the industrial world we're worse than any other one of the g8 countries at this because they're better at rail than the united states like we suck at derailments and if you ask anybody in rail which i did this week why they'll tell you it has it's a mixture of infrastructure of using older technology because of the infrastructure and regulation, mm-hmm. just not being held to a higher standard. And the higher standard will force us to make better infrastructure and to use higher technology in our rail, in our rail, um, our rail engines. And I'm just thinking, how do we not talk about this all the time? Like all the time, Doug. And then I gets me in the whole pipeline thing. Like, why aren't we moving these chemicals more through pipelines? And I, Doug, this is a big deal, man. And you and I have spent the better part since the pandemic, like two years, just waving the flag for rail, just like being, you know, we're like the rail brothers for God's sakes. And now I'm like, well, hold on a second. Should we have like a national conversation about rail safety? I don't know. Maybe we should. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Here's my take on that one, Pete. A hundred percent rail safety, any type of transport safety is, is that's impossible, but you could insert trucking every time you said rail and train <laughs> right yeah, yeah. and um it, it's it's the nature of the beast so you, yeah. you pulled some stats so i i pulled a couple of stats this morning so there's three this is what I, I i pulled and i can't remember the name of the site so um we don't need to cite our sources pete that's the beauty of the show 
Um, 388,000 truck accidents last year. 40,000 had some sort of fatality with it, right? Um, there's not 40,000 um, uh, news yeah. uh, um, uh, spots about about trucking. And so um, I think the high profile nature of this one has shed a light on some opportunities for additional safety. Um, and I think the same thing could be said for the trucking industry. Every single person wants safe transit. Every single person wants their goods to get from A to B in a safe and compliant measure. Um, and I think these come to light when there's catastrophic situations that come up. Um, but there's still a lot of wrecks and crashes and, and derailments. They're just not of this epic um, uh, epic scale. So I get it. We should talk more about rail. But in the big picture, it's a pretty small percentage. That does not negate what has transpired and the requirement of safety and the, and the tragic nature out there in Ohio with these two derailments. But you could insert truck every time you said train and uh, potentially have the exact same conversation. I think where I would I would caution us to be a little too comfortable with that is the difference is, so, you know, as I've mentioned on the show before, my mother died uh, when she was hit by a tractor trailer driving her car in South Carolina. And that is what makes this conversation a little different. Rail is a, is a contained environment, right? So how many, how many rail accidents happen outside of that contained environment? How many rail accidents are at a crossing? That would be an interesting mm -hmm. conversation where there was a car or a truck or a pedestrian involved, as opposed to how many of those, um, how many of those truck, truck accidents yeah. happened were, were just purely truck hits an inanimate object, truck, you know, falls over jackknifes, truck has a truck incident. I think trucks are probably equally when, when there is not a, when there's not a vehicle involved, the passenger vehicle involved, I would, I would be very interested to see just how incredibly safe tractor trailers are in that environment, as opposed to, um, passenger cars. And that's, you know, for a guy whose mother died in an accident with a tractor trailer, it's pretty interesting to say, but, um, I would be fascinated to see what those numbers look like because I would imagine that a number of those accidents probably happened with a passenger vehicle or associated with a passenger vehicle or an inanimate object. So it'd be fascinating to see what those numbers look like, but you're, you're absolutely right, Doug. We want safety in every single format. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll raise you, Doug. I bet maritime is even lower. Statistically speaking, mm. I bet maritime accidents and maritime casualties are significantly lower than rail. And um, as far as like the amount of cargo that gets where it needs to be and isn't spilled or lost or on fire or water damaged compared to rail and um, over the road. I bet pipeline, I'll bet pipeline's even better. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm sure you're okay. Uh, Pete, yeah. I'm going to rifle through this one because the uh, internet access at our uh, Best Western Hotel in uh, in Fresno <laughs> seems to be marginal. <laughs> yeah. So you've Sorry, been like man. cutting out, and I'm kind of like just rolling with it. So I'm, I'm going to hound this one, and I'm going to keep it sh uh, super short uh, just to make sure. But I love FedEx's new sales strategy. It has nothing to do with rates, has nothing to do with service. It's about creating doubt and fear. I just saw this yesterday that um, there's a potential UPS strike coming this summer. And uh, there is uh, outward communication 
um, from FedEx to its customers, uh, essentially saying switch your UPS shipments to FedEx before March 31st to ensure volume prioritization. Uh, don't wait before it's too late. That is an actual sentence used in that email. Don't wait until it's too late. Uh, and I guarantee that they're going to bring on some new business. There's going to be a little bit of a panic and concern. Um, you know what? So part of me is like, is that kind of a, I don't know, an uncool move? Or is this business business? And you're out there to grow the company and do what it needs to take. And my, uh, some, or my comment is it's the latter, right? I'm good. I'm good. Use your advantage any way you can to grow your business and, and your shareholders and blah, 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 blah. But I don't have a problem with it. Um, there is truth in that statement. Will UPS go on strike? I, I have no idea one way or another. I know everybody will prevent that from happening, but um, I don't have a problem with uh, fear tactics as a sales strategy to uh, help the uh, the FedEx uh, a business profile to grow. I don't know, what's your take? FedEx saying you may not be aware of this dear customer, but our main competitor is thinking about striking. And if you want to have priority over people who are Johnny come lately, you might want to sign on now. Eh, you know, if they follow through with it, it's a hell of a business tactic. Uh, I would feel, yeah, I would feel, I would feel a little leverage though, Doug, you know, I'm a, I'm a dirt chewing hippie and I don't, I don't like people. I don't like people screwing with me like that. So um, if there isn't, if, if I went on board with them and there wasn't a, there wasn't a, a union strike and, and I, I got messed with a little bit. I think I'd feel a little crappy. I don't know. I, I'm wondering what UPS's response will be. So why don't we wait a week or two and see what UPS's response is? Ah, good, good, good point. Yeah. Yeah. yeah but exactly. I'll tell you this much. Sounds like US, the... U.S. Postal Service, buddy, they're always there. Always reliable. Yep. You can always depend on them, bud. Yeah. yeah and with that, <laughs> with that and with Doug's crappy uh, internet connection, that's going to do it for us this week at Global Trade This Week, brought to you by our good friends at Cap Logistics. Uh, to learn more about them, you can visit their website at caplogistics.com. As always, uh, we do appreciate their support bringing on this show. Uh, thank you, Doug, for waking up super early and using your hotel's crappy internet to record the show. Thank you, Doug. Uh, thank you, Keenan, for being yeah. back in the uh, the booth. And we'll see everybody again next week on another edition of Global Trade this week. See you, buddy.